Let's get into the word together. If this is only your second week because Easter was your first week, we are in the Gospel of John. The, the Bible, as I think I mentioned last week, is actually one book made up of 66 books. One of those books is called the Gospel of John. It tells the story of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and what he did while he was on the earth. John, uh, the writer of this book, has one goal in mind, to convince us of who Jesus is, namely that he is the Son of God and that by believing in his name, we can have eternal life. That's John's goal. He writes 21 chapters worth of evidence making his case for who Jesus is. From the beginning of the book to the end of the book, he's wanting you to understand who he is. And so he brings forth witnesses and he presents a number of signs, miraculous things that Jesus does. He, He pulls out some of the statements that Jesus made about himself, but from beginning to end, he's making his case. He's making his case that Jesus is the Son of God and that him we can have eternal life. So we find ourselves this morning in John chapter 9. You can turn there if you have a Bible in front of you. I'd love for you to read along. But before we get to reading John chapter 9, well, first let me pray. And then uh, then I want to start with some things on the handout. Let's pray. Father, your word is true. It's been proven true again and again and again. And your word is life-giving. It's been proven life-giving again and again and again. In fact, you say uh, in your word that it's living and active. God, let your word be living and active here today. May these words pierce our hearts. May May they work in our minds and reverberate throughout our lives this week that we might live according to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so from John chapter 9, I want to present a theological conviction. Basically, that's what I mean by that is just something I believe to be true, convinced of this from the Bible, from God's word, and then backed up by my experience of going through life and trying to connect what God says about life and what I experience about life and bringing these things together. Here is a conviction that I have come to, and you'll see this at the top of your handout. In God's hands... Our most difficult trials and deepest pains actually work to bring about a display of God's glory and increase our good. That's my thesis for today. That's what I want us to walk away as best as I can with the help of the Holy Spirit, convinced of that in God's hands, our most difficult trials and our deepest pains actually work together to bring about a display of God's glory and increase our good. In other words, God takes everything painful, difficult, hurtful, challenging that we go through and he uses it to work, to display his glory and to increase our good. In order to come to that theological conviction, you have to have a very big view of God. And I don't consider my view of God to be big enough, but by God's grace, it's bigger than it once was. My view of who he is and what he has, what what he's capable of has grown over the years, mostly through suffering and through experiencing pain in life. One of the uh, books in the Old Testament that you might be familiar with or you might not, it's okay if you're not, is the book of Job. 
The book of Job tells a story of a man who had everything taken from him. He had his family taken from him, his possessions were destroyed, and he even lost his health. And he was challenged, he was challenged by the suffering that he was facing to, to turn on God and to actually curse God for allowing this pain and suffering to come into his life. And the way that God responds to Job, it's, it's actually a rather long book. And throughout the book, it's, it's mostly this interaction that Job has where he's defending himself, where he's declaring that he's done nothing to deserve all of this. And then he has these friends. Maybe you've heard the term Job's comforters that comes from the book of Job. These Job's comforters are constantly in his ear. You must have done something to deserve this. You must have done something to bring this upon yourself. And Job is just declaring his innocence. And it's this book about wrestling with why do such bad things happen, even sometimes to good people? Good by our standard, of course. And the answer in the book of Job is that God shows up and displays his glory. God does not come to Job and gently put his arm around him and say, now, now, my dear Job, it's going to be okay. I'm sorry that this has happened to you. You really didn't deserve this. It's just awful that all of these things have happened to you. Instead, God shows up to Job and he rebukes him. He puts him in his place. And it, it, on the surface, that seems a, a, a bit cruel of God. You're like, here's, talk about hitting a guy while he's down. I mean, he's already in pain. And now God is going to rebuke him. But the effect of God's rebuke is something to be noted. Job eventually shuts his mouth and he says, you alone are God. And you alone understand the things that happened in this universe. Because God shows up to him. And God, as Job is questioning God, God says, no, 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 wait a minute. Where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I placed the stars in the universe? Where were you when I created the beasts of this earth? Where were you when the oceans were formed and I told the oceans, you can come this far and no further? And on and on for like two chapters, God is just breaking down Job and he's basically telling him, you have no idea what's going on here. How do you know that this is really for your harm and not for your good? How do you know that I might not bring about some great good from this? And indeed, that's exactly what God does. You see, when I'm suffering, I want somebody to come alongside of me and feel bad for me. And, you know, I, I, I call my mom when things are tough, not my dad. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> my mom has never disagreed with me. I'm always right. I can do no wrong. Man, when I'm hurting, that's who I call. Well, Job was trying to call mom, and he got dad, and dad showed up, and he put him in his place, and it was the most loving thing that could have happened to Job, because what Job needed was not to feel like, oh, this is terrible that this is happening to you. What Job needed was for his view of God to become bigger. What Job needed was to understand that God was big enough to handle the devastation that he was experiencing, and not just big enough to handle it, but big enough to bring good of it. He needed a bigger view of God. Let me make this suggestion and then let you chew on it. One moment in heaven, one moment in God's presence is enough 
to make up for all of the suffering that you could possibly experience in this life. To believe that, you've got to have a big view of God. The reason we struggle so much with suffering is because we think, well, this is never going to be okay. This is never going to be worth it. Nobody could ever make up for this. We lose loved ones or we experience tragedy in life. We go through divorce or we go through some of the most painful things that, that human beings can go through. We get sick and, or we lose our jobs. We see what we love and what we enjoy in life taken from us and we think this can never be made up for. You have too small a view of God if that's the way you think. And we all do. We all have that problem. We all have this problem that we think, there are things that I could go through in life that would never be worth it. And I want to suggest that one moment in heaven would make anything that we could go through in life worth it in the end. That's how big he is. That's why God shows up to Job and he says, let me help you understand how capable I am. I created the universe. I'm the one that makes it snow. I'm the one that, that tells the animals what their job is in this world. I'm the one that created the sun, and I'm the one that moves the earth through, through the universe. I've done all of these things, not you, O oh, oh small man, but me, God, the creator. If you have that view of God, or at least make an attempt to have that kind of a view of God, then you begin to understand that suffering can actually be made up for and redeemed. It can actually work for our good, but not just our good, but for the glory of God. Okay, that's what our passage is about today. So I just wanted to set the table with that as we go to John chapter 9. Let's go to John chapter 9. I have to warn you, it's a long, longer passage, and I'm going to read the whole thing because there's just no good place to stop. And it's a great story, and I want you to hear the story from beginning to end. So put your... Put your listening ears on, you know, be prepared to, to follow along, whatever you do, to, to be engaged as somebody reads to you. I know that's a challenge. It's a challenge for me, um, but I'll do my best. Um, I'll, I'll read this passage, and then we'll look at some things from this. Verse 1, speaking of Jesus, as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing his neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they asked him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of the Jews. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. 
Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked them, is this your son? The one you say was born blind, how then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple. We are Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and you were trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. All right, so that's our text. So, As I mentioned earlier, John's making his case about who Jesus is, and Jesus is regularly having these interactions with the Pharisees and with the Jews, and they're kind of debating over who he is, and they're bringing other people into this. It's it's sort of like a long, ongoing trial where they're trying to come to the truth. If any of you have been been watching the Derek Chauvin uh, trial this week, and they bring forth witnesses, and they present evidence, and they do all of these things, and they cross-examine people, that's what's happening here. They're, they're trying to get to the truth, or at least they're trying to get to some conclusion. Maybe not the truth, but what they desire. And so that's what this chapter is about. If we look at the big picture, this chapter is about who Jesus is. But if I'll be honest with you, as I preach through, through John's gospel, every passage, that's the main idea. And so for me to just keep preaching the same thing over and over again, don't you see who Jesus is? Don't you see the evidence gets a, a little bit repetitive? And so I'll, I try to break things up a little bit, and I try to look for other things in the passage that are important for us to think about. And so what I want to talk about today, as I've already kind of set the table, is this idea of suffering. 
I want to look at this, this man's experience and what it is that we can learn from his life and his interaction with Jesus about what we should expect to happen as we suffer. So I've got a couple points to make. They're all on the handout. The next one is this. All suffering is the result of someone's sin, but not all suffering is the result of someone's sin. Fair enough. <laughs> this is the question in the beginning of John chapter 9. Who sinned? You remember that? Let's, let's, well, let me give you a second. Make sure you got this. Uh, blanks filled in before we take that off the screen. All suffering is the result of someone's sin, but not all suffering is the result of someone's sin. I think one of the first questions that we ask when we encounter suffering is why? Why is this happening? Why is this necessary? Why is this even possible that we would experience suffering? The Bible gives an answer. Suffering is the result of someone's sin. So, that brings us to uh, chapter 9, verse 1. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Now, this was an ongoing debate then. It's an ongoing debate today. Uh, who sinned that caused particular suffering? Not just general suffering, but here's a man with particular suffering. He's blind. And that creates suffering. Uh, I have a couple of I have a couple of let's say acquaintances uh, who are blind, my age adults who are blind, and they've lived their whole life that way. That's a tough road. It's a tough road. It creates a, a, a lot of suffering in a lot of different ways. It, it creates social suffering. It creates physical suffering. Creates emotional suffering. It, it, it creates spiritual obstacles. Even it affects every area of life. This man was having that experience. We don't know exactly how old he he is. We know he was born this way and that he's of age. So he's not a kid anymore. So they asked the question, who sinned? They even asked, did this man sin? Now, how can you be born blind uh, as a result of your own sin? Well, there was actually a debate in that day that you could sin in utero before you're even born. And that was just an ongoing debate that they were having, perhaps as a way of trying to explain some of these types of circumstances. But this reflects their mentality. Someone must have sinned. Either his parents did something wrong and God has punished them with a blind child, or this man actually sinned before he was born somehow, and he's been punished for that sin. Jesus says, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. That is an important thing to get. Now, when I say all, all suffering is a result of someone's sin, I'm speaking to the idea that suffering came into the world as a result of human sin. And suffering is increased within the world as a result of human sin. Generally speaking, suffering exists because of sin. So, in that sense, all suffering is a result of someone's sin, whether it's Adam and Eve's sin or the sin of humanity ever since then. But not all particular suffering is the result of a particular person's sin. In other words, if you have a child that's born blind, it's not a good assumption to think that that is a result of a sin that you have committed. It's, it's not a good place to start from. My wife and I have a daughter who was born brain injured. 
And I'll tell you, you think about these things, you're like, did, did we do something to deserve this? Um, did we do something wrong while my wife was pregnant? You know, you, you start wrestling with, and that stuff will eat you up. And, and that'll, that'll give you guilt, and that'll, that'll give you shame and, and, and get increased pain. We think this way, and we need to hear Jesus out. This suffering is not a result of someone's sin. It exists because sin exists, but it's not his parents' fault, and it's not his fault. There is suffering that happens that is not a result of a particular sin by a particular person. Now, there is also suffering that is the result of a particular sin by a particular person. We do great harm to each other. We can, we can do awful things. I, don't, I, don't, I hesitate to even give examples in case, you know, I hit too close to home for somebody and it comes across as insensitive. But if you're thinking of a way in which you have caused someone to suffer because of your sin, I just want to encourage you to, to lay that before Jesus today and to allow his forgiveness to work in your life and his grace to work in your life because if you don't, you can, you can carry around the guilt and the shame of that forever and it'll, it'll eat you up and it'll do things to you that you don't want to happen and it'll affect the people around you and it'll affect your relationship with God. To some degree, we've all caused other people harm through our sin. We need mechanisms for dealing with that. We need ways for, for presenting that to Christ and saying, I know you died for this sin as well. Would you help me receive your forgiveness? Of course, there's times when we need to try to make amends and, and do things to make things right, but we can't always make things right. That's one of the things that we have to learn to live with in this world. Our actions can't always be undone. And so if you're here today and, and you've caused suffering through your own sin, I just want to invite you to grace. I want to invite you to receive Jesus' love, his mercy, his forgiveness. It's important. It's an important thing to deal with. Um, but that's not the emphasis of the text here, so let's keep moving. If all suffering is the result of someone's sin, but not all suffering is the result of someone's sin, how should we view suffering? Because that's kind of clean, if, if, you, if, you, if your worldview says anytime there's suffering, it's because somebody sinned. It's because that person sinned or somebody close to them sinned or somebody did something. That's kind of clean. That was the view of Job's friends. You know, Job's suffering, they're like, well, you must have done something wrong. But that's not a biblical worldview. That's not the way the Bible speaks of suffering. There is suffering that happens as a result of particular sin, but very often there's suffering that, sh that cannot or should not be associated with a particular sin. So if that's the case, how should we view suffering? Is it just the unfortunate consequence of living in a broken world? In other words, is it meaningless? Is it senseless? Does it have no real purpose? Or does it have some sort of God-ordained purpose? to accomplish important things. That's the case that I want to make. The next thing on the handout, the next fill in the blank is this. God actually does some of his best work in the midst of suffering. He actually does some of his best work in the midst of suffering. A couple weeks ago, we talked, um, when we were in John chapter eight, I think it was two weeks ago, we talked about this idea that God's glory 
his fame, his renown, the, the display of who he is, God's glory, okay? And our good are not in competition with one another. They're not at odds with each other. But in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ and you're in him, God's glory and our good actually go hand in hand. As one increases, so does the other. It's not as though we have to sacrifice our good so that God can be glorified. It's that as God is glorified, our good actually increases as well. They're not, they're, they're in a sense inseparable. You can't increase one without increasing the other, and you certainly don't have to decrease one to increase the other. They go hand in hand, and that's the good news of the gospel. And if that's true, then we want God to be glorified. We want God to be known. We want his fame, his character, his beauty to be seen by all. That's what it means for God to be glorified. And God, if, so God, if God actually does some of his best work in the midst of suffering, we see an example of this here in John chapter 9. Jesus says in verse 3, this came about. Why, did this man, why is this man blind? Who sinned? Nobody sinned. Jesus said this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. In other words, that that God's glory might be seen, that he can be glorified in this. Now, that sounds, if you take away what I just said about God's glory and our good, sounds a, a bit sadistic. Is God using our suffering for his own good? Yes and no. Yes, he is using our suffering for his glory, but our good is attached to his glory. And so he's not, he's not decreasing our good so that his glory increases. He's actually making himself glorified so that our good increases. Let me show you where I come to this conviction. There are actually several places in the Bible. One of my favorite places to look on this subject is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. So did God create, this is the question I want to try to answer. Did God allow this man or cause, however you want to look at it, and I think it's an important distinction, but so I'll go with allow. Did God allow this man to be born blind just so that he would look good when Jesus healed him? Or, as I've suggested, did God allow this man to be born blind so that this man's good would actually be increased? so that this man's good would actually be greater than if he had not been born blind? I think the answer to both of those is, in a sense, yes. Okay, 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says this. If you're familiar with the life of Paul, uh, one of the apostles who took the message of the gospel to the world, you know that he endured a lot of suffering. He went through a lot of really difficult things. So this is how he describes that in verse 7. Now we have this treasure in in clay jars. He's referring to his body. The treasure is the gospel. The treasure is contained in clay jars, these fragile, breakable bodies. So that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body. Sounds fun. You want to sign up for ministry with Paul? (laughs) So that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. I'm going to skip to verse 15. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. 
So if I pause there, Paul is saying we go through all of this suffering. We're broken. We're, we're, we're perplexed. We're persecuted. We're struck down. We carry the death of Jesus in our body so that God's glory might increase. Okay. So is, is he saying this? Our good goes down so that God's glory increases. We have to keep reading. Therefore, verse 16, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Listen to verse 17. This might be the most important verse I read today. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul says in verse 17 that this momentary light affliction, by the way, Paul's got issues with words here. Momentary light affliction. This guy's been like suffering physically his whole life since coming to Christ. And he says momentary light affliction. It's only momentary in light if it's in if it's in the context of a glory so great and a good that is so good that it makes some of the worst things that we could experience here on earth as momentary and light affliction. He says that it is actually producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Paul's suffering is creating an eternity that is better, it is producing a a glory, a weight of glory that is eternal, that is incomparable to that suffering. If you uh, played the Powerball this week and you won $250 million, quarter of a billion dollars, and on your way to head out the door to cash in your ticket, you stubbed your toe, Would you lay there in pain the rest of the day and think, how could this happen to me? Uh, Nothing good ever happens in my life. Or would you say, I don't even care. I got a quarter of a billion dollars today. That, that, That pain is incomparable to the good, correct? Paul's saying that's true of everything we go through on earth. And I, I, I want us to understand how much he means that. That's, if things are going well, that sounds agreeable to you. If things are going well for you right now, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. But if you're hurting, that's hard to embrace. Because pain is real and suffering is real. And we go through it in this life. At one point or another, you're guaranteed to hurt and to hurt bad. You've got to have a view of God that is big enough. That's why God rebuked Job. That's why God shows up and flexes and shows off his power in front of Job. Because he wanted Job to know that God is big enough to take that pain that he's experiencing and redeem it 
and make it work for his good and to actually make it so that one day Job would be able to say, I'm actually glad that happened to me. Can you imagine an eternity so great and, and the relationship between the greatness of that eternity and your pain and suffering on earth so obvious that you will one day stand before Jesus and say, thank you. Thank you for taking my loved ones from me. Thank you for allowing my health to fade. Thank you for letting me go through that divorce. Thank you for let, letting me, I could go on and on and on. Could you imagine an eternity so great that, that you would actually be glad you went through the painful things that you went through on earth? That is exactly what the word of God is telling us is the case. But you have to think much of God to believe that he can do that. You have to have a very big view of God. And that's what Paul did. That's what Job had to learn. That's what I think by, by his grace I'm learning. As we go through suffering, as we experience pain in this life, our view of God just grows and grows and grows. And we can say along with Paul, I know this is true. I know this momentary light affliction is actually going to make eternity better. I'll be grateful one day for all of this. All right, we've got a couple more points to make in just a few minutes to make them, so let's keep moving. God actually does some of his best work in the midst of suffering. The next thing is this. We are God's first responders when it comes to suffering in this world. We're his first responders when it comes to suffering in this world. So they meet this blind guy. They say, who sins? Jesus says, nobody sinned. This happens so that the works of God might be displayed. And then he goes on in verse four. He says, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, we must do the works. Now the work happens after this. Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud. By the way, very interesting story. As far as I know, nobody knows definitively why he did it that way. Uh, I, I did a little bit of research and study on that this week. Um, and, and, and there are different ideas of why perhaps Jesus did this with the spit and the mud and why he told him to go wash in this pool. And there's some possible connections. But at the end of the day, nobody really can say with any certainty. So I won't say with any certainty why he did that. But we know he did it. He spits on the ground, he makes mud, he puts on the guys, and the guy, and the guy can see. So why does Jesus say we? <laughs> There's no we here. They're just standing there watching this miracle take place. Jesus does all the work. This is the beauty of, of, of coming to Christ and being a part of the body of Christ, is that he invites us into his works. He gives us the opportunity to participate with him in doing his work. So we are God's first responders when it comes to suffering in this world. We are commissioned to look around us and say, where is there darkness? Let's bring light. Where is there suffering? Let's bring comfort. Where is there need? Let's meet those needs. That is the responsibility of us as Christians that is the, the role and responsibility of the church in this world to bring light into this dark place. And he wants us to do it. Now, as first responders, we have to know there are limits to what we can do. We can't fix everything. And we can't fix everyone. We know that, that, that 
you know, uh, well, just, th- just stick with that analogy of a first responder. A first responder shows up on the scene, and, and their, their role is to address the immediate needs and then get them to where they can get greater help. And I, I like to think of that when I think about our role as first responders. Uh, several years ago, probably a dozen years ago, I was at an intersection where I was stopped, and there was traffic that goes through, and you have to wait till the traffic goes through before you can pull out. And there was one car in front of me, and that car in front of me inexplicably pulled out right in front of another car and just got smashed. And so I put my car in park, and I jump out, and I run up. And it's an older lady. I later found out she was 80 years old. And um, I looked. This might, this might gross some of you out. But I looked down, and her knee was back here, and her leg did this. And I was like, this isn't good. <laughs> And she kept saying her chest hurt, which she ended up, she had cracked a couple ribs um, from the seatbelt. And I was like, yeah, yeah, your chest hurts, right? Your chest hurts. Don't look down. <laughs> and then somebody who actually knew what to do showed up. And I was like, I'm going to let you handle this. <laughs> and, and, it, and the lady healed well. It, has a, a, she, it turned out well. Amazing. At eight years old, this lady healed as well as she did. Um, but, you know, as first responders, we don't always have all the answers, and we can't always fix everything that needs fixed, but our goal is to respond. Our goal is to be there. First responders show up. First responders are there to help meet needs, and if, and if needed, to, to help get them to somebody else that can help. God wants you. Jesus commissions you to be a part of what he's doing in this world, to be a part of doing his works so find, find a place where you can be a part of doing the works of God. Find a place where you can enter, maybe even enter into suffering and help bring comfort and bring care. One more. The last thing on the handout is this. When God's people do God's work, many will come to believe in and worship the one true Savior. Here's the really cool thing. When we obey when we become God's first responders, when we do his works, as Jesus did here in John chapter 9, many will believe. We have this promise that if we go and we bring the gospel to the world, that people will respond. Not everybody is going to respond. We know that, but we need to stay focused on the fact that many will. Many will come to believe in and worship the one true Savior. This is, the, this is what happens in this story in John 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. You remember, there's this whole story now. After Jesus heals him, the Pharisees get involved, and just like they constantly did, they try to ruin a miracle. They don't recognize who Jesus is, and they try to get in the way of what he's doing. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Which was another way of, of the, one of the ways that he identified himself. In other words, do you believe in the Savior? Who is he, sir, that I may believe him? Now remember, this man has never seen Jesus. Jesus sent him away blind. And he does not see Jesus until this moment. Remember when the Pharisees are asking him, they're like, you know, I haven't even seen him. I just know he gave me sight. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said. And worshiped him. Here is this moment where 
there was suffering, a man who was blind, Jesus enters into that suffering and he brings healing. And now this man's response is to believe in and worship Jesus. I want to I encourage us to have that exact same plan. That's a good game plan. Find a need, enter in with the gospel and the light of Jesus, care for the people that are involved, and expect the people to respond by believing in him and worshiping him. That's, that's the end game. That's what we want to see happen. Listen to this man's testimony before the Jews. Verse 24, it says, So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. He didn't have all the answers. Theologically, he had no explanation. He had no answer for these people. All he had was his testimony. All he, all, and, and, and that was enough. It was enough. It got him thrown out of the synagogue. It got a response from the Jews, but it also brought Jesus back into the picture. Whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I can see. If you can share a brief testimony like that, then you can make a difference and you can help bring other people to know and believe and worship Jesus. Can you testify to one thing that God has done in your life? That's enough. Now, I'm not saying stop there. I'm not saying don't develop responses to the theological questions. I'm not saying live in ignorance your whole life. You know, this, this man probably didn't stay in, in that ignorant state but he didn't wait until he had all the answers. He didn't wait till he had a Bible degree. He didn't wait until he, he was uh, taking an apologetics course so that he could answer any questions that might come up. He just shared what had happened to him. And if Jesus has done something in your life, it's time for you to tell somebody. It's time for you to become a witness for him. And by doing that, we can do the works that he has brought us to this point to do the works that he has created us to do. So let me just remind you of a couple of things here. All suffering is the result of someone's sin, but not all suffering is the result of someone's sin. We know that God actually does some of his best work in the midst of suffering. That's so comforting. If you're suffering right now, expect that God is doing some of his best work. We're called to be first responders, and when we do when we do act in that role, we can expect that many people will come to believe in him and worship him and join us as Jesus followers. And let me finally, just in closing, go back to that opening statement. In God's hands, our most difficult trials and deepest pains actually work to bring about a display of God's glory and increase our good. That's a God that's worthy of worship. That's a God that's worthy of trust and worthy of obedience. Would you pray with me? And the worship team can come up and, and get ready to, to lead us in worship. Father, thank you that you speak the words we need to hear. Job didn't need pity. He needed a big God who was in control, who could work all things together for good. And we need the same. And you are such a God. Help us to see you that way. When we suffer, 
Help us to remember you are a capable God. And in your hands, our suffering will be redeemed. And in your hands, our suffering never goes to waste, not one drop of it. And also help us remember that you've called us to work. This is the time to do the works of God. This is the time to go into this world to share the gospel, to comfort those who need comfort, to bring light into a dark world. God, send us out. Send us out with our testimony. Send us out with your spirit to do your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.